God, we thank you for uh, loving us. God, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Savior a tear to earth for us, God. We ask this morning, Lord, in the, in the post-Christmas season, that you would still give us ears to listen for you. God, we are open to your love this morning, and so we just pray, God, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, 22 to 38. Let's listen to the kind of sequel of Christmas Eve. And when the time came for purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit of the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to what's custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having living with her, lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for redemption in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We do not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from your mouth, oh God. I tell you what, I'm, I'm fired up about this morning. You know, typically, uh, typically we come after Christmas Eve and we kind of, the Sunday after just kind of goes, um, but not at Spring Hill. At Spring Hill, we do baptisms. And uh, we already had three, three baptisms at our a legacy site this morning. We've got another one this morning. We we're gonna have two more, but those poor boys are in urgent care uh, they, they're fighting the, the flu bug, but we still got one here. And, uh, and I just want to call out Tristan for a minute and just say that this all began with one young man's obedience to God. One young man felt like God was calling him to get baptized, wanted to do so in obedience. And as we close 2019, we look at 20 baptisms in our midst. Thank you, brother, for stepping up to the call. Um, I'm so grateful for you doing that. Um, but if you were with us at Christmas Eve, um, you'll remember that, uh, that we talked about this idea of expectations. It caused me to reflect kind of back on 2019, thinking, what was I expecting last year? And when we asked this simple question about what are you expecting from God, because we learned that Christmas is all about expectations. We found out that Bethlehem had been waiting 700 years for Christ to be born. A prophet had given this promise that from this little town would come this ruler who would bring peace. And yet when the moment finally comes, 700 years later, it seemed as though 
everyone had forgotten. It wasn't the neighbors who went looking for Christ in Bethlehem. It was foreigners from the east. It wasn't the local temple that went and spread the good news about this savior. It was the, the, the shepherds out in the fields in the desert. And to be fair here, a lot can change in 700 years. Like, if you think about it, like just, just think about the last 100 years of our lives. Think about how much has changed there. But for whatever reason, by the time Christ came, Bethlehem didn't even have a room available. And so it got me thinking over the week, like, waiting is kind of a lost art, isn't it? I mean, what does it even look like? What does it even mean to come expecting for God to do things in your life? I realized I kind of missed that part out on Christmas Eve. What does it look like for us to wait on the Lord? Because it's one thing to walk out with our candles with this reminder that Christ is coming back and to have this encouragement to expect that God's gonna do good things in your life. But what does that look like? How how do we do this thing called waiting? And I think the question is really timely because the infancy story in Luke's gospel suddenly shifts to these two ordinary people this morning who, unlike Bethlehem, had expected their entire lives to meet this Christ child. And Jesus shows up not at the beginning of their waiting, but at the end. Simeon and Anna had been a lifetime marathon of praying and planning and anticipating for this promise. You know, no one typically remembers this part of the story. You're probably not gonna find either of these two people in the midst of your Christmas decorations, In fact, in the entire Bible, this is the only place that we see Simeon or Anna even mentioned. And yet in this short little vignette, we have a master's class on waiting. I mean, if we were to compare our lives with Simeon or Anna, it doesn't even compare. This art of waiting, it's it's all but lost. I think we live in a, a day of instant gratification. Like It used to be that when you needed to get across town in, a say, a big city, you'd call a taxi and you'd wait maybe upwards of an hour for them to arrive. And now we just click on Uber and the closest driver nearest to our location wins. In fact, Uber says that it only takes three minutes on average nationwide for a pickup. I called a customer service line earlier this week and instead of them putting me on hold with the same elevator music, they offered to call me back. With this promise that I wouldn't lose my place in line, they said, your convenience is our priority. That was nice. You know, waiting isn't something we do much anymore. I'm leaving this afternoon to go see my family um, for the new year, and I was thinking about how different my relationship with my parents is compared to older generations. Like, just think about this. Even in my lifetime, when we used to go home for the holidays, we hadn't seen each other's faces all year long. You ever thought about that change? And our weekly phone calls together would be on Sunday afternoons and they'd be very, very brief because we had this thing called long distance charges. Any remember those days? <coughs> Think about the significance of that change. Like the immediacy of, of gratification. Today, if I want my mom's, if I want to see my mom's face or if the girl's asked to see Pa, all we have to do is hit a button. And yet I think there's a cost to this convenience because waiting has kind of become this foreign concept to us. What exactly does it look like for us to wait? 
to wait upon the Lord, as the psalmist says, to wait for him to move in our lives, to wait for him to answer prayers. Um, What does it look like for us to wait for the return of Christ? Look at this up on the screens in Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Simeon and Anna, better than any of us, had mastered this concept. They had been waiting with expectation for years, and now finally the day has come. It had been 40 years since Jesus, or 40 days since Jesus' birth. And his parents bring him to the temple in Jerusalem in order to fulfill this law under, under the law of Moses. And in today's context, the, the ritual seems kind of foreign, but hear me out. Um, the Torah had made clear that after birth, a woman was seen as unclean for seven days. And then for 33 days after that, she and her child were to avoid all things that had been set aside for God. That would be including holy people, holy temples, holy foods. And in today's context, um, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm losing my spot here. Um, but at the end of 40 days, the family then went with the temple to be made pure. Um, In fact, our lesson says the time came for their purification. And historically, the the mother and the child would then be presented for this ceremony. Before Christ, these purification rituals were abundant, right? Um, They signified a people who were desperate to be made holy and set apart by an almighty God. And that might seem odd, but just consider the baptism we're going to see this morning. We no longer go through these purification rites because we now have one baptism that Remind us of Jesus washing our sins. But it's in this act of worship that Joseph and Mary meet two of the most ordinary people in the entire Bible. In fact, these two are so commonplace, we know next to nothing about them. From what we can tell, there's no religious elite involved, no high priest, no Pharisees, no Sanhedrin, no Levites, just a man and a woman committed to waiting on God. That's some kind of endurance, isn't it? Just a few years ago, um, at airports across the country, we were facing this problem with wait times in baggage claims. Customer relation departments were being inundated with phone calls and, and angry travelers. So they got the best, brightest ideas and minds together, and they decided that the, the solution would be to add more baggage carriers at peak times and seasons throughout the year. And so as a result, the wait time per bag drops almost in half from 16 down to eight if you're measuring the time from gate to carousel. But interestingly enough, the complaints kept coming at the exact same rate. So at Bush Intercontinental Airport, they decided to take this another step further. And they discovered that on average, it took most of their patrons in one minute to walk from their gate to the baggage claim, which meant seven minutes were still spent standing and waiting. So the airport execs came up with this, this new game plan. They moved their arrival gates further from the baggage claim. I kid you not. And they routed all the bags to the furthest carousel from their gate. And now these eight minutes were spent walking instead of waiting. And almost overnight, the complaints dropped to near zero. We hate waiting. Just try to picture that moment for a minute with me when Simeon after his entire life, finally takes this Christ child into his arms and blesses him. I mean, he must have been an emotional wreck. 
all this longing, all this time, and now in your hands you hold the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world from its sin. The wait is over. And then we come to Anna, who after 84 years of hopeful anticipation, suddenly realizes that the hour has come. The scripture says she worshiped night and day, fasting and prayer, her whole life long for this moment. I mean, just do the math with me for a minute. That's 30,700 days of waiting. The Bible says she never left the temple. This was her daily routine. And if you're wondering how two people pull off that kind of endurance and patience, I think we find this simple lesson in God's word this morning really quite simple. And they're waiting, they worshiped. That's it. And they're waiting, they worshiped. And you know, we often think about worship as what we do on Sunday morning where we gather together and sing songs and pray and hear God's word, have the sacraments and grab a cookie. And that's true. And yet it's so much more than that. Like what if waiting on God was actually an act of worship? Not a burden, not an inconvenience, not an annoyance, but worship. I want us to see this morning how Simeon and Anna lived this lifestyle of waiting while they worshiped and worship while they're waiting. I've got three points that I wanna, uh, I think might help us to do that. Look at this on your screens. First, their lives were more about character than credentials. Second, we're gonna learn that they lived by the spirit instead of themselves. And third, we're gonna find that they clung to Christ despite their circumstances. So let's look at this together. First, it seems to me that in this worship of waiting, their lives were more about character than credentials. That's not to say that the two are exclusive, but if you think about Simeon's life, there's no qualifications of this man. On, on paper, there's no reason he should be clinging on to Jesus and the temple. We might assume he was a priest, but Luke's gospel doesn't give us that title at all. We don't know about his lineage or his pedigree. We know nothing about this man. Luke's not concerned with that. No, he wants us to know two very specific things about Simeon. He says he was righteous and devout. The only thing Luke wants us to see is that this man worshiped God in righteousness and devotion. And you know, I think when it comes to the waiting game, those two things are really hard to come by, right? Doing the right thing and staying devoted to God. And I say that particularly when our, our prayers aren't answered how we want it or life isn't going how we planned it. You know, it'd be so much easier for us to just take the shortcut, to push God out of the way and take matters into our own hands. That's far easier than waiting. Here's a random story and just go with me on this. I promise I'm going somewhere with it. But back in college, we had a, a raccoon in our backyard that was just tearing things up. It was horrible. The trash was all over the lawn every week. So our landlord set up these traps with an apple. And you've probably seen these things before. It's really, it's really quite ingenious. The raccoon sees the apple, walks into the trap, steps on the lever, and then gets locked inside, right? And I think sometimes we, we see that apple, whatever it might be in your life, and we want it so bad that we forget about what it means to wait on God and to do the right thing. And instead of waiting, we jump into the trap. And this was the story of Adam and Eve, right? Whatever that apple is in your life, I think when we compromise on what's right to jump ahead to what we want, we lose. And in so doing, we, what we're really saying, I think, to God is that we actually 
we actually believe God wouldn't move to begin with. And we get tired of waiting, so we just take care of business on our own. You have to wonder, and I'm just guessing, but did anyone know about Simeon's expectations? Do you think that he felt crazy as he got older and older and nothing happened? Do you suppose people laughed at him or mocked at him for having faith in something that was clearly not coming to fruition? Do you think it got more difficult as the world around him left the idea behind? No, Simeon will go down in history for his devotion to God for his commitment to righteousness. And then there was Anna. And to be fair, Anna, she had all the credentials. Luke names her as a prophetess. That puts her with the heavy hitters, like Miriam and Deborah and Isaiah's wife. She's qualified, all right. But again, that's not the focus. Luke goes at length to give us the same story about Anna. She's a woman who's given her life to worshiping, to prayer and fasting. You know what fasting was about in the, Old Te- in the Old Testament in the temple? God's people fasted as if to say, we, we know things aren't right. It was a sign of repentance, to, to physically leave behind the cravings of the flesh and return to God. So in her waiting, she worships him in devotion and righteousness, which brings me to this second point. And that is that Simeon and Anna lived by the Spirit and not for themselves. New York Times wrote a fascinating article a few years back about this obsession that we have with the self. In the 1950s, elevators were so slow that employees uh, used to have their morale drop by the time they got from the bottom floor to the top in their offices. Corporate had noticed this impatience of their, this impatience of their staff being stacked into these boxes like sardines. So they began experimenting with different methods to improve the ride. One of the first attempts that they made was to install mirrors on the walls of the elevator. Anybody ever seen that? Now you know why. People loved it. See, because now you could fix yourself in the mirror. You could make sure that you were prim and proper to the day. You could obsess about how good your shoes looked. And before you knew it, the ride was over. We're a culture that's obsessed with the self. But Simeon and Anna are the antithesis of that. They're the opposite of that. Three times in the story, Luke wants us to know that Simeon is not only a man who is righteous and devout, he's also a man who's led by the Holy Spirit. Look at this, Luke 2, 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before the Lord's Christ. So he waits. Not in his flesh, but with God. And Luke tells us it's by the same Holy Spirit that he's now led into the temple to see this promise. And I don't know about you, but um, I would love to have that kind of relationship with the Lord. To wait when God says to wait, and then when it's time to go, to have the faith to follow, to trust in the promise that God's made. And yet God's word tells us this gift has already been handed to us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? But if we're going to discern where the Holy Spirit is leading us, it has to begin with waiting. I tell you, um, just before Christmas, the uh, the elders went on this retreat to try to discern where this church is headed, where God might be leading us. And uh, you'll you'll remember just a a few weeks ago, we were jumping all over that. And it felt really odd, I think, for all of us to take a break in the midst of the busiest season for all of us and the busiest season in the church to do this. 
Um, and I had the whole game plan written up. We'll start Friday night. We'll spend some time in prayer. We'll get that out of the way. And then on Saturday, we'll do this procedure, and then we'll set up that process, and we'll move from step A to step B to step C. And with Ryan's great plan, out will come the perfect picture of where we're going. Well, about four hours in, we hit gridlock. And I mean gridlock. It was silence in the room. We were stuck. I was looking down at my feet going, oh, geez, where, where is this going? The guys who had been a part of corporate America, they were convinced we were, we were done. It was over. Like, let's all go home. And then one of our elders softly and quietly said to all of us, Ryan, maybe we should spend some more time in prayer. So we did this. We spent a lot more time in prayer. We quite literally began waiting on God to move. And I kid you not, just minutes after sitting in that silence and going to the Lord, the dam broke. Let me just say sideboat, and by the way, um, later this month, we're going to be rolling out that new vision for our church, and um, I'll tell you, just getting through the holidays, like, it's, it's exactly where we need to be. It's right where God has led us. But with all that said, I think the question for us is, what does it look like to wait on God? I don't mean like pie in the sky, sort of, thanks, Ryan, for the great inspirational speech. I mean, what does it look for us to intentionally wait like Anna did? Maybe with a daily prayer journal or with fasting or a new commitment to a Bible study or quiet time. But what would it look like for us to begin looking for God to move in our midst instead of trying to go about life on our own? I think a lot of times we forget to look for God altogether. It reminds me of a, a popular story about a man who got his foot stuck walking along the, the railroad tracks. And he tried to get out, but he was stuck bad. And just about the time he was working on it, he heard this noise and turned around and saw a freight train coming right in his direction. So he panicked. And he started to pray. He said, God, please get my foot out of these tracks. I, I promise, Lord, I'll do anything. Um, I'll stop drinking. Well, nothing happened. So he prayed again. He said, God, please, if, if you get my foot out, I, I promise I'll stop swearing too. But still nothing. The train came screaming towards him and he cried out one last time in desperation. He said, God, I'm begging. If you get my foot out of these tracks, I'll quit drinking, I'll quit swearing, and I'll quit smoking. Suddenly his foot came loose. He fell out of the tracks and rolled down the hill just in time. He got up, dusted himself off, looked toward heaven, and said, never mind, Lord, I got it on my own. It's as good as they get after Christmas, folks. But really, I think there's only one way for us to know what God is doing in our midst. And that's to stop and to wait on the Lord. To cease from living for ourselves, and even for a moment every day to open up his word and in prayer begin worshiping him. Which leads me to this last point, and that is that Simeon and Anna clung to Christ despite their circumstances. You know, Anna didn't have an easy life. She was a widow, lost her husband just seven years into their marriage. And as a reminder, in Palestinian culture, that meant you were not only a woman in grief, but also now a woman without privilege. I mean, really, consider that kind of pain that she must have went through. And yet in the midst of this hardship, the Bible tells us she not only clung to Christ, but clung to him radically so. 
walked away from the situation in front of her. Anna never left the temple. I mean, to the very end, her focus was on him. At the hour that she knew he came, look at this. She began giving thanks to God and spoke to Christ to all who were waiting for the redemption in Jerusalem. And likewise, Jesus' arrival now means Simeon can depart in peace. Let me translate what that means. You can now die, Simeon. He was told that by the Holy Spirit. You will not see death until you see Christ. Simeon realizes his life's mission has been fulfilled and it's time to go. He says so. Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. I mean, just consider that for a minute. You've been waiting your entire life, your entire life to meet this Savior born for the salvation of Israel. Would you not want to see that come to fruition? I mean, if I was Simeon, I'd want to be the first disciple, right? He's already got the front row seat. And yet, this isn't the beginning for Simeon. This is the end. This is his last will and testament. And he's singing praises to God. Lord, I'm ready to go. I've seen your salvation. What does it look like to wait expectantly on God? It looks like worship. It looks like living for character over credentials. It looks like seeking the Holy Spirit over our own agendas. It looks like choosing Christ despite whatever it is that we're going through. For those that are counting, and I'm not sure anybody is, we have 361 days left before Christmas. In the meantime, here's our challenge straight from God's word. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait upon the Lord. Let's ask God to give us patience and endurance to do that this year. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you for your patience and your endurance with us. And yet, God, we, we confess that we often stumble back into our own thoughts and our own game plan and our own ways. Lord, we're not patient. We, we don't want to wait. And yet your word calls us to do that. God, so as we wait on you to move, whatever it is in our lives, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, God, we just pray, would you keep us attentive on you? Would you give us a devotion that fights for our faith? Would you give us righteousness that seeks after Christ? God, we thank you that in him, we know that we have this hope that we can wait expectantly. Lord, we pray, help us to do that this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, Skellings, I want to invite you guys to come on up. Jordan and Morgan and, and Gideon, you guys, well, you've been here, what, a little over a year? More than that? Not quite a year? April? Um, guys, meet the Skelling family uh, who are near and dear already to uh, the hearts of many in our church and little Gideon. Who's, uh, who's ready to be baptized this morning, right, buddy? You ready to be baptized? Are you ready for the shiny tree? That will also work. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for, uh, for the gift of baptism. Lord, that we don't have to go through a purification rite over and over and over again, but that you've given us this sign and seal of your grace to us. God, and so I just pray over a little Gideon this morning. Lord, I ask that as we do this baptism together, you would um, just come by your Holy Spirit in our midst, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, baptism is about promises. First about the promise that God made to us, but then also about promises that we make to him and to one another. So first I have some questions for, for you guys. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon him for your salvation? Do you promise and resolve and humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit that you will seek to live as followers of Christ? Do you promise to serve him by serving in the life of this church as you are able? Do you acknowledge Gideon's need of Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises and benefits for him? And by faith, do you look to Christ for your salvation uh, of, of Gideon as you do your own? Do you commit yourself to pray with Gideon, to teach him the scriptures and the great articles of faith in Christ? Do you promise to use every means provided by God, including faithful participation in this church, to bring him up in the loving discipline of the Lord? You're not the only one making promises, church. Will you stand up? I have a question for you this morning. Do you, the members of this congregation, and in the name of the visible church of Christ, take responsibility for these children, promising to set a godly example by your own life and to pray for them in the life of faith? If so, please say, we do. That was easy. Man, Tori's not here. She could pick all of her Sunday school teachers this morning. You may be seated. Come on over here, little man. So Gideon, Blaine, Shelling, Skelling, I baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Brother, you are a child of God. Got water running down your back. You are loved by God. Your parents love you and this church loves you. No matter how shy you are, God will lead you all the days of your life, little man. Let me pray for this family. God, so we just pray, would you watch over Gideon? Would you watch over his parents? Would you lead them all the days of his life? Would you guide him, Lord? We thank you for your love for us and this sign that reminds us of how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Let's welcome this little guy to the family.